Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Pax Britannica, the Scottish Revolution interview series, Scottish Republicanism and Anti-Monarchism with Dr. Sharon Adams. Welcome to the Pax Britannica Scottish Revolution interview series. Today, I'm happy to speak with Dr. Sharon Adams, an independent researcher now based in Germany after several years at the University of Edinburgh. She is a specialist of early modern Scotland and the Covenanting Movement, and co-edited Scotland in the Age of Two Revolutions with Professor Julian Gooder. Her chapter in this volume, In Search of the Scottish Republic, is a brilliant analysis of Scottish political thought during the revolutionary period, including the decisions Scots made in the aftermath of Charles I's execution. Dr. Sharon Adams, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. You make a point in your chapter, in your co-edited volume with Professor Gooder, that republicanism doesn't start and end with the abolition of monarchy, and that republican tendencies can focus on restricting absolutism and securing the rights of the subjects. Would you say that the Covenanters had achieved this by 1641? I would say they achieved it from 1641. And I think that's a very important point. What is republicanism? You know, there's this famous quote by Pocock, it's a language, not a program. I think in Scotland, it's something more. It's about a practical response to the working out of politics. The Scottish debate had long been over things like, you know, tyrannical monarchy, right to resist. But the Covenanting Revolution shifts that because 1641 had been described as a virtual constitutional revolution. And what I would argue is that after 1641, Scotland achieves what you might call a a limited monarchy, a balanced constitution, whereby Parliament, a surprisingly stable Parliament rules in the King's name with very little reference to him. So in some ways I've said that monarchy is a necessary fiction and that is what becomes clearer as the 1640s go on and the person of the king himself becomes more debated. That's a really interesting answer. If we fast forward to 
the the trial of Charles, the trial of the king. Mm-hmm. Quite a momentous event, I suppose you could say. Um, how did the Covenanters view the trial itself? No, so not the not the eventual conclusion, but how do they view the idea of judging a monarch, God's appointee on earth? That is a very interesting question. If I can backtrack a bit of course, and clarify what we mean at this point by the Covenanters, because that is part of the interesting debate. In this period, I think it's very, very hard to talk of, you know, fixed groups, of stable groups. What we have are kind of, you know, shifting factions, coalitions, interest groups. And then the key is how you make a coalition, who has political power and dominance, and how that fluctuates. And what is particularly fascinating is the Covenanters in power um, when the king is tried in England are really the radical rump because what they've been through, they've been through effectively this constitutional parliamentary government. And then in the late forties, a royalist counter-revolution. And in the wake of it, it is the real radicals who seize power, who dominate power and control Scottish politics. And have excluded all supporters of the king from public life. And that's what's so fascinating. It is this group. It is the group who are most equivalent, most like the classical view of English parliamentarians that have to confront this issue. So I think that's one point I'd like to make. So then to answer your question, how they view it, that is very interesting. They are very, very well aware of what is going on. There are three Scottish commissioners in London reporting regularly, and the Kirk also has commissioners reporting back, and they are taking a view on it. Um, To summarise that view is very much, don't interfere, don't get involved. They explicitly say, do not demand the king being restored to power, active power, because we don't want that, and he hasn't stuck to the rules. You know, I think they do accept that Charles I will never be the king they want, the king they need. Um, they also say explicitly, do not condemn the principle of trying the king, but don't support the verdict. And there is a bit of a legacy here, because here is kind of the counterpoint, the kind of the classical, you know, the the kind of like the, the renter quotes about, you know, the Scots being royalists proclaiming Charles II king of England. There is this problem, you cannot separate the king's English and Scottish bodies. You know, it sounds simple, but you can't cut off his English head and leave his Scottish one. There is this problem. And this problem actually goes right back to 1646, to actually the end of the first phase of the English Civil War when they actually have the king. You know, when the English parliamentarians have the king in person, that's what really starts to open up the fracture lines because the Scots say, look, he's our king too. Don't we have a say in what happens to him? The English say, no, we alone have the right to decide what happens to the king. So this is, you know, for, for me, when I think about this, there are like four issues that for broad brush Scottish covenanters are bound together, none of which can be given up. Monarchy, the three kingdoms, the covenants and Presbyterianism. And all of these are actually coming into play 
through this medium, the silent execution of the king? So the answer to answer that succinctly is they know what's going on. They do not oppose the trial per se. They're not advocating getting him back. That's totally clear. But there is some friction. There is an issue over who is doing what in consultation with whom. And the point that we have to remember is the people in power at this time are the Scottish radicals. They are the most radical covenanters of this period. Something that struck me reading reading the National Covenant and, and other documents like it is the confusing way that these essentially rebels against the king throughout all of their documents all their propaganda they are insisting they are they they stand by the king's rights and privileges and all this other stuff and yet they are taking up arms against the king and there's this distinction that they try to get across that they are loyal to the crown not necessarily to the person wearing it is that contradictory or is there more to it now that's a good question. Yes, it is contradictory, no doubt about it, a hundred percent. I think different things lie behind it. One of the things is that the National Covenant, especially being drawn up so early in 1637, eight, you really are looking at a mass subscription document that is designed to appeal to as many people as possible. You know, it is deliberately not radical. It can't be radical. I mean, the National Covenant is quite a fascinating document. I just love the, the, there's almost a romance. I remember sitting in the archives one day and I ordered up something labelled Scottish miscellaneous 17th century. It was the British Library. And what came was a National Covenant on a sheep. You could tell <laughs> where the arms and legs had been. And I thought, oh, nothing interesting. Then I thought, hang on. And I was holding in my hand a locally signed covenant covered in signatures of ordinary people, effectively ordinary people. And it was one of those kind of like wow moments as a historian that you kind of almost get divorced sometimes from the reality. I think that's an important thing to remember that the, the national covenant especially isn't some kind of political manifesto or greatly worked out. It is debated, it's negotiated. It is a compromise. It's a fudge. You know, it has to be to make it as widely accessible. And at that point, many people who we later call royalists, supporters of the king, are in the covenanting movement, which is being seen as maybe a protest against specific issues. Now, to take your debate a bit further, there is an argument that even as early as this, there are so-called incendiary devices buried within it. And some of these do surface later again throughout the 1640s, because here's the question. They pretty much always toe the line of, you know, we are here to support the king, his position, his rights, blah de blah de blah. Over time, this kind of gets qualified, you know, as long as he upholds these conditions. And the conditionality in the monarchy is always things like rights and liberties of parliament, general assembly, the covenant, Presbyterianism. And here's the interesting thing. The National Covenant, which on the surface of it appears as fairly pro-monarchical document, 
over time can be read as subordinating the king to other things, to other rights apart from monarchy. And in 2021, that doesn't sound much. But in the 1630s and 40s, saying the king is subordinate to anything, especially anything apart from maybe God, is actually quite radical. Brilliant answer. There's a term used by another podcaster, historian, uh, Mike Duncan, who creates the Revolutions podcast series. Mm. And he has basically looked at, as the name would imply, lots of revolutions throughout history. And there's a trend he's noticed, and he's coined the term, the entropy of victory. So once a revolutionary coalition achieves their aims or is close to achieving their aims, a lot of the discrepancies and disagreements that had been papered over start to become more and more relevant. Once you start to see the finish line, you think, what's going to come after? Does that play a role in the in the in the breakup of the covenanting movement once it became apparent that they had to find answers to these vague conditions that it started to lead to a collapse of that unity? One hundred percent. I think that's a very important point regarding Scotland in the 1640s. I mean, an interest I'm being mischievous here, but you know, we kind of hail England as the beginning of the parliamentary regime and the earliest experiment. I would argue being just troublesome, but I kind of believe it, <laughs> that the Scottish Parliament in the 1640s was, if anything, a more stable governmental regime with a broader base of support. But it partly rests on this, this fictive use of the king and the king's name, because the king is the source of authority. And that's the problem it sounds simple to us to create an alternate regime, but where does sovereignty come from? Where does authority come from? These are relevant questions that we still ask today, just we have a different answer than the king or God or whatever. And in a way, as long as they're fighting, it's quite easy. Mm-hmm. The, the, the cracks really come with the end of the first civil war in England. You know, when Charles is kind of out the picture, he's... In a, in a place of safety, apparently we shouldn't cause trouble, but he can, being Charles I. Um, and then the cracks really come. And this is when you really have the resurgence of the Royalist Party, the Royalist movement in Scotland, who've been kind of kept out of public life, comes over a debate about the king's safety. That's their way back in, you know, the, the, the king is not safe. And this is how you have this counter-revolution, counter-revolution, and get to this point in the late 1640s where the radicals are in charge. Now, we have achieved stability again, but the problem now is the regime in power have a very narrow support base. This is not the broad-based movement of 1641. The Covenanting movement of 48, 49 has a much narrower power base is purged, has purged everybody out of public life who's not, you know, on on the right side, so to speak. They do, they're not put in place by the church, but the the church, the Kirk, is an important ideological bulwark for them, and that's an issue. But they're still using this fictive of the king's sovereignty, the king's authority, interpreting in a kind of very narrow way. And this is why the question of what do we do if there's no king, that just blows everything out of the water. And I would kind of, 
I understand. I understand why in England executing the king, which is still a massive state in England, why it becomes the, the only solution. You know, you can't put him in exile or lock him up. But the minute I would actually argue it's not the Scots that caused the trouble in 49, it's the English. What they do is the incredible step of not just executing him, but declaring a republic. And what that does is it really leaves the Scottish radical regime in a very difficult place. And of course, think about it. If the English having Charles I just in prison was kind of like a way back in the Royalists. What about the regicide? The regicide really blows everything out, out the water. So yeah, there's this, there's, there is this atrophy, which I think actually comes earlier in 46. And it, this is worked out in various stages of revolution. And that is then why in, in 49, the issue of the monarchy, the regicide, the succession, is incredibly, incredibly controversial. And, you know, the dilemma, what do you do? is a very real one. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing... The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi. I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag... Join us on the Pirate History Podcast.
And of course, what they do in the end is they proclaim Charles's son king. Interestingly, not just king of Scots, but king of Great Britain as a title. Why did they choose that title? Did they know? Did, surely they realised how incendiary that title was when half of that title was declaring itself a republic. Now, that's an interesting question. One, do they know? They don't. The English have executed their king. The republic comes a month later. Now, you think about it, what's the more logical step in this setting, a republic or another figurehead monarch? The other thing to think about is what are they doing? They do it very quickly. They do it almost immediately in getting the, the news. And the title is interesting because it's not just King of Scotland, King of England. They declare Charles II to be king in all of his titles, including, of course, the interesting France to still claim. I would argue it's formulaic, it's what you do. And they declare him king simply on the base of right of succession. He is king because he's father's son. But here's a really interesting thing. They declare him to be legally king, but they do not say he can use his royal power. They separate the two. He is declared to be king, but he does not enter his royal power until he has satisfied conditions. And it will take a year between this declaration and his coronation. A coronation in which his rule is still limited and circumscribed and conditional. The problem is you cannot separate the king's English and Scottish bodies. And that is a problem for Scotland, for England, for the monarchy. And what is the solution? I don't know, actually. It's interesting. I also thought, you know, what was the right thing to do? It's a, it's a bit of a counterfactual question, but if they'd only proclaimed him King of Scots and left England and Ireland and even France out of it, would that have still led to war in your, in your opinion? Would that have, because surely Charles would want to recover his, his other titles. I know it's a debate, but I quite like counterfactual history for if history, if the, the facts in question were potential options, especially when thought about you know, I think that's what's interesting. My immediate answer, and, and an honest one, is I honestly don't think the thought ever crossed their mind. I, I don't think what they did was a great conscious step. I think it's just the king is dead, long live the king. That's what you do. That's who he is. That's his titles. And now we stop and think and negotiate and see where we go. I don't think it's a product of a long thought, but I don't think even anything is meant by it. The other thing I think we're getting into here is the extent to which the Scots, the Covenanters, no matter who, cannot think out of this three kingdoms Anglo-Scottish context. And here's something interesting. You know, I said there were kind of four things that are kind of not negotiable or they hold on to monarchy, Presbyterianism, three kingdoms, the covenants. The group in charge at this time really believe in the covenants. They adhere to the covenants. And the covenants are not just religious, they're legally binding. And the solemn legal covenant to them is a solemn agreement signed with England. 
that stays forever. They cannot go against it. And to proclaim Charles King just of Scotland would actually have breached the covenants. So that's, in answer to your question, I think it's why it doesn't even cross their minds. I think they really hope things were just, you know, Charles II, he's king, we go on like before. The first thing we do after it is actually to get seals made in the king's name, the new king's name, to go on governing. But to answer your question, would it have led to war? Yes. Even if they were like, England, you can do what you want. Yes. I cannot imagine a scenario in which Charles II came to Scotland as this kind of limited covenanted king and accepted his kingdom stopped at the border. I find that hard to imagine. Equally, I find it hard to imagine that Cromwellian England would have accepted that on the northern border. Scotland would have been seen as a threat to English security and they would have invaded. I do have evidence for that as much as I can. Again, it's slightly counterfactual, but when you see how England, I'm using England in very broad terms, I mean, the parliamentarian regime, army, Cromwell and friends, how they respond to what's called engagement, which is this, you know, Scottish brief support of Charles I in 1647. The Scots actually invade England and they lose horribly. But then English troops come into Scotland and they have to because they want peace on the northern border. And they only leave once they are sure that the regime in power, the rival covenanters, are kind of friendly towards them. I do not think either Charles II would accepted this or the royalists around him, because that's the thing. He has interesting advisors who also have ideas but above all how could England accept that so I find it very hard to see a solution maybe the solution would have been in fact well here's an interesting thought what if England had followed Scotland's model why not and proclaimed Charles II yeah but not let him have any power not let him do anything that was the Scots plan. That was the plan. Have a king, have authority, have legitimacy, stop the royalists rallying around a cause, but he has no power. England could have done that. It's what they've kind of been doing as well, isn't it? However, I, I don't know. How stable was that? There, there was always the threat, as long as you know the king was alive at large, believing he had power. Well, the only solution is to do what France did a century or so later. That's a bit drastic and that's just not on the agenda. But I think that is it. As long as people are alive who believe that this is their blood right, their birthright, and they have enough supporters, can it ever be stable? They do proclaim Charles II. And like you say, they, they start negotiating with the new king in exile. How do those negotiations go? Um, at the start, very badly. <laughs> The first ones come back and go, him, can't talk to him, he's an idiot. Well, <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, um, at the beginning, Charles does not want to compromise either. It goes badly. But as time goes on, as it becomes clear that, you know, England is going one direction, as it becomes clear that there's not going to be a royalist uprising in Scotland yet, 
things start to crystallize. I mean, it's a long negotiation period, it really is. That you know, he cannot even set foot in the country or exercise his power. And what is interesting is during this period, it's still the radicals in charge in Scotland and they are actually doing things that should be the king's prerogative, should be the king's job, but they are doing them instead. An interesting question against counterfactual is, what if Charles II had never compromised? Would he have got to come back? And maybe not, or maybe not for a very long time. So they, they go badly at the beginning, but over time, I think it becomes clear to Charles, this is his only hope, his only chance. He, he compromises. In hindsight, he thinks he's humiliated, he possibly was, and he does come back. But, you know, the rhetoric, for example, at his coronation, it's is incredible that, you know, they're preaching about, you know, a limited monarchy while they're crowning a king. You know, crowning a king and saying at the same time, and your power is limited. It's, it's quite striking. I'm not saying it's republicanism, though in, in the language of republicanism, you could certainly classify it, but I wouldn't call it royalism. When Charles is crowned at his coronation, it's just over 25 years since his father came mm. to the throne. And I wonder, as, a, as an illustration of quite how far the constitutional changes had gone, what would be the most obvious differences that Charles II faced as soon as he comes into his power that would have been completely alien to his father 25 years ago? Oh, practically everything about it. Who was there, the ceremony, the fact he is obliged to sign the covenants... The sermon preached at his coronation, we actually have the text, and that is really quite striking, what the king had to sit and listen to, you know, what should be the high point of his, his monarchy, who places the crown on his head, the Marcus of Argyll. Everything about it, and again, the fact it is delayed, the fact he doesn't come back to be crowned, he is crowned almost, not an afterthought, but, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not the royal coronation. It's not what you, you expect. I mean, I mean, they say he hated every minute he spent in Scotland. That's what he said when he, when he eventually came, he said he hated every single minute. And it wasn't just the weather, it was how he was treated. You know, every single minute was like torture because every single minute was almost rubbing his nose in it. You know, literally, there are cartoons at the time of, you know, showing how the king is being humiliated. And I think, you know, we see that after 1660, that's how Charles II sees it. He basically hated Scotland. For him, it is a vehicle back to power. It would have been, his, his whole time in Scotland would have been very, very strikingly different. That he was not ruling, well, as his grandfather did, but, you know, even his father's visits. But then, of course gets overtaken by preparing for war you know that that's the thing that there's there's no stable period between the return and the start of war with England you know he never really gets to to play this out the coronation is against the backdrop of you know war is coming so it's it's a very very different scenario and generally what I've seen and what I've read about the, the negotiations and and what Charles agreed to is the consensus almost that Charles never planned to stick to any of what he agreed. Is that your conclusion as well? Uh, yes. 
And actually not just mine, um, because that's what you really see, because what becomes interesting, you know, when this ends in war and after the first cataclysmic defeat at Dunbar in September, ooh, 1650, and that's one that just ends everything. Um, but they're very different because the army at Dunbar is still the army of the, of the Scottish Covenant, of the purged, of the godly. The, the army at Worcester is kind of like everybody left, everybody can come back. And it really does. I mean, it ends with the Scottish nobility pretty much destroyed, in prison, impoverished. I mean, it leaves Scotland basically in a horrific state. But what you actually see is um, the next kind of break point is actually after Dunbar, you know, after this defeat Dunbar, you know, what do we do? And you really see, this is when kind of like the, the radical wing of the radical wing, because we're kind of going, kind of more radical to go along. They really start questioning, you know, the, the king is ungodly, the king is untrustworthy. And a lot of them really never believed a word Charles II said. They never believed it. People like Johnston of Warston were always a bit suspicious of what he said. And you really see them kind of coming out of the woodwork and saying, you know, this, this king is untrustworthy by the last one. We can't believe him. He won't stick to his promises. He's the problem. He's why we lost. And one of the documents issued actually says, we will no longer fight for this king. So I think that's the thing. He, he, he always compromised under duress. He never believed it. He was never going to stick to it. And a significant number of people actually think he never did believe it. And one thing that's interesting, when he actually takes revenge on a handful of people at the Restoration, one of the charges against some of them is actually not supporting his return enough. Because people were suspicious. I was actually, I was going to ask about that because the fate of the regicides is well known, but Charles targeted a, a few Scots for, yeah. uh, for execution when he came back. Were these purely grudges from his from his earlier return, or were there more political pragmatic reasons to get someone like Argyle out of the picture? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. He targets these three people. I think if Rutherford had been alive, he might be on the list too. To be honest, I would have. Oh, of Lex Rex fame. Yeah, Genau. Yeah, exactly. Oh, random German coming in there. <laughs> 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 I normally zoom in German, which is kind of odd. Yes, I do think they are symbolic targets. The charges laid against them, because there are charges, do mainly come from this period of the of the return. And for example, you know, James Guthrie, who is, is one of the targets, um, his work Causes of the Lord's Wrath, lovely name, comes from this period, relates to this period. And you know, it is declared to be seditious and treasonous. And he himself says, well, yeah, maybe you could read it that way. I think, yeah, I think Charles's grudges are out of this period. And the people he targets were all linked with either not supporting his return enough or with critiquing or limiting him. So, yeah, I think there's a definite link here. You know, these are the Scottish, there are no Scottish regicides per se, but, you know, if there had been... That's the people who Charles goes for. It's interesting who he picks. He knows who he's going for. And I, and I do think this comes out of the king and his circle. He knew these people. Mm. You know, he met them. This isn't like 
other kind of similar things where you have an advisor, you know, taking out a rival. It's not that kind of thing. Maybe a guile, maybe, a, maybe taking a guile out the picture for some people is important. But I, I do think there is something, it's personal, but in this very political way linked with the, the return and the limit and this whole idea of, you know, the king's limited power. That definitely surfaces in the, the charges against them, yeah. Dr. Sharon Adams, was there a Scottish revolution? Now that is an interesting question. My one word answer is yes, but I think I'd like to recast the question and actually answer and say, I think there is certainly revolution and counter-revolution. And in fact, there's maybe more than one revolution at this period. And what I'd add to that is how I think I would justify my yes is not just my perception, but I do think there's a sense that contemporaries were aware that they were doing something different, that they were turning politics, society, polity upside down. Yes, they stress continuity, they stress legitimacy. And with the very fact they have to do that indicates to me they are aware that they are doing something revolutionary. What a fantastic answer. Thank you so much, Doctor, for coming on. What are you currently working on? What are your current projects? Anything that the listeners might be interested in, in having a read of? Nothing that will be published um, anytime soon, uh, but linked to this topic, what I'm actually working on right now is looking at ideas of cultural memory and memory of place and how that fits in, in the covenanting movement because we're trying to move away from this kind of just the total narrative, good as it is, and to look more at kind of, you know, the culture and society and the inner workings. And that's my current way into that and using it to make a link between the early 17th century and the late 17th century, because that link is obvious, apparently, but sometimes hard to actually make and prove and tie together. Sounds fascinating. Again, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a really enjoyable interview and uh, I'm sure the listeners have loved it. It was all my pleasure, genuinely. <laughs> Thanks again. Thank you. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.